0: Friends, I'd like to direct your attention this morning to Mark chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 5 to 23. And this is the time to dismiss, as Greg mentioned earlier, kids who are sixth grade and younger uh, for a time of of kids ministry geared for them on the third Sunday of the month. So blessings to you kids who go. Of course, uh, parents, welcome to keep your kids in here if you choose. But I will bless you who go and and adults who go to serve among them. Thank you. And um, what we'll do is read God's word. And then pray and go from there. Our text, as I said, is verses 5 to 23 of Mark 13. But I'm going to read starting in verse 1 for some helpful context. So let's hear the word of the Lord. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Sorry. Hey, boys, Everett and Solomon, let's stay here, okay? Change of plan. We'll stay here. Sorry to put you on the spot, guys. Thank you. And let the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And, when it, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But uh, be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Let's pray. God, we always need your help to approach your word and to hear what you have to say to us. And we're especially conscious of it with difficult texts like today. We need you not only to give us clarity of understanding, but to open our hearts to receive your truth in our inner being. To see the glory of your son in all he's doing in this text and all he is for us as our Savior and Lord, as our prophet and priest and king. Please minister to our hearts whether to save those who don't know you, whether to comfort, whether to clarify, whether to encourage, whether to admonish. We pray you'd shepherd our souls in the green pastures that you have for us in your grace. Pray for myself and my pro- proclamation. Give me faithfulness. Give me clarity, wisdom, and love. Give us all ears to hear so that your glorious purposes might be realized in our lives. Amen. Amen. The disasters that rock our world can often shake us and disorient us as Christians. It seems like everywhere we turn, the world is experiencing instability and tribulations. Uh, We look at the Christian world, the church, broadly speaking, and we see ourselves divided by various teachings. We see factions and cults and sects. We see all sorts of geopolitical problems in the world. We have a war in Ukraine, two years old now. We have a war in Gaza. We have ominous war clouds in Taiwan. What's China going to do? I just recently heard about North Korea saber-rattling. In the Korean Peninsula, we see Christians facing blistering persecutions around the world. And we struggle to understand what does this mean about our situation in history, our moment in history. What is happening? Now everyone, Christian or non-Christian alike, has a deep instinct to try to make sense of things. What's happening? Orientation. What's the story of the world? Everyone has some kind of narrative of what's happening, where are we? But as believers, we're asking a more specific set of questions regarding where do we stand in God's decreed course of redemptive history? Where do we stand relative to God's promises and what he's going to do bringing all things to completion? What does this event mean about our moment in time? Is Jesus coming back soon? Is that what it means? Is there something that I should be doing? How do I prepare myself and avoid missing out or being caught unprepared? We can feel all all kinds of unease and angst about all this. And just look at the Christian book market. It testifies to the voracious evangelical appetite for insight about how to interpret current events relative to biblical prophecy. Just go to a Christian bookseller and type end times prophecy as a category or look that up. And you're going to see all kinds of books trying to say, here's what's happening in the news and here's how it relates to what's been prophesied. And Christians want to know. I need to know what's happening. What should I be doing? Now, we return to Mark's gospel, and particularly to chapter 13, where we've started last week, been moving through this gospel. And last week, we looked at verses 1 to 4, and we saw Jesus predicting the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. In all of its jaw-dropping grandeur and beauty, it was going to come down in divine judgment, ultimately for rejecting Christ. Four of Jesus' disciples said, excuse me, Jesus? They they, they approached him and asked him for follow-up. They asked him questions, these two questions. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to happen? These are questions we can relate with. We would probably want to ask questions like this. So, as I pointed out last week, the whole text flows from the matter of the Jerusalem temple being destroyed. At some point, future to Jesus' earthly ministry. That's the topic. That's the banner that flies over everything we're seeing today. And the main thing we're going to see today is that Jesus tells us how to understand the past and inhabit the present. Jesus tells us how to understand the past and how to inhabit the present. And as I said last week, we're delving into the biblical area of eschatology, which is a fancy word meaning the study of the last things. And again, you might be afraid of this topic. You might be indifferent to it. You might be overwhelmed by the complexity and detail. Maybe you've done a little bit of reading, wading in, and you're like, yikes. You might have very specific and strongly held views. You might wonder why any of it matters. You might feel multiple of these things at once. But I hope we began seeing last week why it does matter. It has a lot to do with knowing the trustworthiness of Jesus' words about the future. Words that promise blessing for all who trust and know him. And words that threaten of cursing and doom for those who don't. There are other benefits to eschatology. And in all the issues I just raised a few moments ago. How we wonder, where are we in time? What's happening in the world? What's going to happen? All those things touch on our understanding of the last days. God has not told us everything that's going to happen. Not even close. But the better we understand what he has told us, the better oriented we will be to our moment in his timeline. And the more discernment we'll have about what does matter and what doesn't matter in the world. And the more confident we'll be About carrying out the mission that he's given us in these days. So I appeal to you once again that knowing what God has revealed about the end does matter to our lives. So let's look at that. Let's crack open the main idea, again, that Jesus tells us how to understand the past and inhabit the present. We'll start in verses 5 to 13, where he tells us how to inhabit the present. How to inhabit the present, verses 5 to 13. Now, let me allow, uh, allow me some general remarks about this text, and we're going to go in kind of in detail and delve into it in, in pieces. But again, Jesus has just been asked about the timing of the temple's destruction, and here he begins his answer by providing a bunch of non-signs. They said, when's it going to happen? What's the sign? And he starts by saying, well, it's not this. This is not the signs that it's about to happen. Look at verse 7. He says it very explicitly there. When he says... This must take place, but the end is not yet. It ain't this. It ain't this stuff. And you'll contrast with what he says. The big pivot will be in verse 14 where he he says all this stuff. It won't be this. And then in verse 14 he says, but when you see, that's a signal that now I'm giving you the sign. You see, I'm giving you timing when, and I'm giving you a sign, something you'll see. But 5 to 13 is like, don't, don't get your eye off the ball. This is stuff that isn't the sign. Does that make sense? So we have Jesus describing conditions that we would call business as usual between his two advents. That is between his ascension into heaven and his return in the end of days. Now he's particularly describing, I believe, the things that will be happening before the temple is destroyed. Because again, he's saying it's the end is not yet. It's not coming. But I believe that it's applicable, and and it's applicable to history after the temple is destroyed. And uh, we'll get into more of that in a bit. But what I I essentially see him saying is, this is just the fabric of time as it will occur between my advents. This is business as usual. This is not a sign that anything unusual is happening. It's not a sign of a big cataclysmic event. So the phenomena we're about to hear are not the indicators of something unusual unusual they're not signs to read and Jesus gives us these these uh, descriptions of the world so that we can be warned against becoming distracted and flustered by this crazy world that we inhabit it's like when you feel turbulence on an airplane and the pilot's friendly voice it gets kind of bad you know like a little bit of turbulence okay and then it gets kind of bad and then that pilot's friendly voice comes on the intercom and says essentially don't worry Folks, it's just a little bit of turbulence. And the the, the subtext there is, we are not about to crash. (laughs) The idea there is, yes, you might think these are signs that something's about to happen. I'm here to assure you, this is just business as usual. In an airplane hurtling through the air at 30,000 feet through the atmosphere. Now, I hardly have to tell you how useful such predictions would be for us today. Because I said, our own hearts and the Christian media ecosystem are all too too quick to place dire eschatological interpretations on all these events we read in the news, which are exactly the kinds of things Jesus is about to describe. So let's hear what he says. Let's hear him telling us what shouldn't surprise us in our moment of history. The first one is verses 5 and 6. Don't follow pretenders, but Christ. This is how to inhabit our era. Don't follow pretenders, but Christ. He says, verses 5 and 6, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So look out for false messiahs. That I am he, the Greek says, I am. Which you may recognize as a self-claim Jesus makes to deity. It's saying, I'm Yahweh. He says it a lot in John. But it comes up earlier in Mark 2, this idea that I am is a divine claim. And he's saying people will come and say, I am. People will come and claim to be the Christ. Now, history tells us that a string of false messiahs did crop up in Judea after Jesus' earthly ministry. There were a good five or six that I've heard about in the decades following his ascension. And it seems like the people were ripe for the Christ to come and appear. And uh, these human pretenders, doubtless influenced by Satan, were all too ready to step in and claim that mantle. But again, this is applicable more than just to the generation of Jesus and after We're not in a Jewish context, so it's not as though we're going to get a lot of people bombarding us saying, I'm the Messiah promised by the Old Testament. That's not as relevant a claim in our day. But we get false Christs too. For one thing, we get heretical false Christs, divergent teachings about him that end up giving us different Christs. I think of the heresy of Arianism, among others, that that cropped up in the 4th century, but it also exists in a more modern form among Jehovah's Witnesses. And that that teaches that we have a Christ who is less than divine. He's actually the first of God's creatures. That's a false Christ. We also have things like cult leaders who arise and claim a Christ-like role. Even if they're not, again, saying, I fulfill the Davidic promises. They're not referencing it to that because we're Gentiles. That's not what people are looking for. But they rise into that Christ-like role and they say, I'll save you. I'll guide you. I'll teach you. I'll be your I am. He says, watch out. Watch out for people who will make these claims. So when we look around the world and we see so much religious confusion, false Christian teaching, sects and factions and cults and human saviors aplenty, we're supposed to read Jesus' words and look around and nod and say, yeah, he told us those people would be around. He told us they would try to draw us astray and say, I am I'm he. I'm the Messiah. And the Apostle Paul knew this stuff was coming too. Remember, in in Uh, his address to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 verse 30 he's seeing them for the last time and he warns them and says from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them and I think that word disciples is so key there because he's talking about followers of Christ he's saying they will try to draw away followers after themselves even among the church this is sadly business as usual in this era of salvation history. So friends, don't be drawn away or shaken by the abundance of false teaching that swirls around us. Stick to the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus of inspired Scripture according to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And beware of these false Christs. Jesus' the second warning about our days and the second instruction for how to inhabit our era is don't seek signs but faithfulness. Don't seek signs but faithfulness. Verses seven to eight. He says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So we were talking just now about kind of divisions within the the Christian or religious world, maybe more broadly. This is the headline news stuff. This is wars, Ukraine, Gaza. Rumors of war, will China invade Taiwan? Inter-ethnic strife, that's what nation-rise-against-nation means. These are ethnic groups. Think of Jews versus Palestinian Arabs. Think of Han Chinese versus Uyghurs in China. Earthquakes that kill thousands in mere moments. Great famines that afflict millions with hunger. These kinds of things are all over our world and all over the news And Jesus says in verse 7 that these things are necessary. How? Is he saying it's some kind of domino thing where uh, causally these events will lead to his coming to the end? Rather, I I think it's instead of that, it's divine necessity. He's saying this has all been ordained beforehand by God. This is all ordained by God. It's been decreed and it will all happen before the end. And even though all sorts of such things will happen before the end, it isn't the signal of anything unusual. It's not a harbinger. It's not an early warning sign. Rather, in verse 8, he calls it the beginning of the birth pains, which is a vivid picture that there will be more pains and sorrows to come. And it is all leading to this culmination, a big, grand moment of relief and blessing, like a childbirth. That's how Paul describes the world's condition. Again, ongoingly, this is the state of the world. He says in Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pain of childbirth until now. So we are in an era of pain preceding blessing and glory. But it's just the fabric of time. It is painful. And it will go on until the moment when Christ returns. That will be the birth moment when he returns and consummates his redeeming work. And we finally find relief and new creation. So yes, Jesus tells us that the days after his ascension are to be filled with global disasters. We should expect that. It was this way in the generation before the temple's destruction. It's been this way for all the centuries since. And it's still this way in our world today. Do not expect world peace to break out spontaneously in this time. Things will continue like this until the end. It's like when your friend gives you driving directions and she says, you'll come across a big water tower. Don't stop or turn yet. Keep going. It's still two more miles before your turn. Sometimes a landmark doesn't tell you anything's about to change or you should do something different. It's just a little progress report saying, yep, you're on the way. It's a bit of assurance. Just keep going. You see that water tower? That's right. Keep going. You're getting closer. And that's what Jesus is giving us, descriptions of what it's going to be like on the roadside, what we'll see as we keep on chugging along through history. Now how useful it is for us as Christians to receive such a warning and to be instructed to resist distractions and speculations about these big world events and how they relate to the end. It's astounding to me how Jesus literally says, the, the world will be crazy, this doesn't mean the end is coming. And many Christians go and do what we look around at the world and say, wow, the world's crazy. This must mean the end is coming. And people have been making this mistake for hundreds of years. You see, especially eras in history with, with particular instability. You'll see this outbreak of eschatological speculation. You'll see people making predictions about, oh, he's coming now. It's finally happening. There was a big outbreak of this in like the 1830s. A lot of these cults we have now, they all came out of like upstate New York in the 1830s. And everyone's like, ah, and, and the Seventh-day Adventists were predicting he was about to come. And anyway, it happens. It keeps happening. So reject all of it. These books that are trying to tie current events to biblical prophecies, the, the Christian book market is pumping out healthy doses of those. They are less, worth less than the paper they're printed on. All they do is distract us from the stuff Jesus said to be concerned with, with the things he said, don't worry about this or read into it. So what should we be busy with instead? This brings us to the third way he tells us to inhabit our era. Verses 9 to 13. Don't shrink from persecution, but endure it. The word of the day is endure. Don't shrink from persecution, but endure it. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand of what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end... Will be saved. So first it was false messiahs, then it was disasters, and now it's the experience of Christians in the world, at the hands of the unbelieving world. And in short, it will be persecution and hatred. Now, it's interesting that in verse 9, you might notice that what he predicts for them sounds an awful lot like the sufferings Jesus himself is about to go through, just starting in the next chapter here in Mark. He talks about Jewish tribunals, He talks about beatings. He talks about kings like Herod, rulers like Pilate. You see, that's no accident. He's already told his disciples back in chapter 8, verse 34, that if you'll come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. It's intentionally modeled after his own sufferings to come. You'll follow the same course. Now, you might see verse 10 and think, hold up. The gospel must reach the nations, all the nations first. Which, which kind of like raises a question. Before what? There's an order being referred to here. Before what? Now, given the context, I think it's a little bit uncertain whether he means before the end end or before the more immediate end that he's been discussing, which is the temple destruction. I honestly think it could go either way. I'm not sure what he means. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I lean toward he's saying before the temple is destroyed. That's the end that's most immediately in view here in the text. But that raises another question of wait a minute, the, the the gospel has still not finished reaching all the nations. Isn't that what the missiologists tell us? We're still reaching all the people groups? Well, it depends on what we mean by that. Uh, there are indeed missions people who have developed these definitions, very technical definitions of all nations. And there is value in trying to get the gospel to every tribe and every tongue and so on. But sometimes New Testament authors, when they say things like all the nations, they basically means something like all over the known Roman world. And we know that because we hear Paul talk that way in a couple places, in, in like AD 60. The gospel has not reached to every ethnic group the way uh, people, missions people uh, discuss today. But he says in Colossians one six that in the whole world, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. He's like, it's all over the world bearing fruit. And he says later in verse 23 of Colossians 1, the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. You're like, already? What do you mean, Paul? I think the idea is that he's saying it's not reached every single tribe and and, and language group yet, but it's out there, it's spreading all through the earth, it's filling the Roman Empire, and it's well on its way to reaching all those far-flung corners. And that might be what Jesus is talking about when he says in verse 10, the gospel must first break out of Jerusalem and start that advance into all the nations before the end of the temple. Another thing that might disturb us is verse 13, that those who endure to the end will be saved. So are we talking about salvation based on some kind of merit? No. This is one of many New Testament texts that describe endurance as the fruit that sure faith is sure to achieve. And you might think of the parable Jesus told back in chapter 4 about the different seeds that fall on the four soils, and only one of those four soils proved to have been genuine, and the way it proved that it was genuine was by bearing fruit. It produced something. And so that's the idea here. People for whom salvation has truly taken root, people who have truly believed will endure, that faith will prove, that endurance will prove their faith is real. And then we might say, we'll endure till what? Again, till, till the end, is that? The temple destruction, is that? And I believe it's just endure until the enduring is done, until there's nothing left to endure. So for some people, that'll be death, In their individual experience, you'll endure till your end. He's clearly saying people are going to be delivered over to death. You might have to endure till that end. It might be until he comes back and there's no more persecution and suffering in the world. Enduring to whatever end that may be for us on an individual basis. But nestled among these dark predictions of persecution and betrayal, do not miss that note that gospel progress in, in, in verse 10... It shines like this beautiful gem. It's not unrelated. He's saying you'll be persecuted, you'll go to trial, the gospel will go forth. That's related. It's in the very process of testifying before hostile rulers and the very process of giving their lives as martyrs that Jesus' disciples and later generations of Christians will see the gospel advance. You see this happening in Acts. It's Paul's trials toward the end of Acts that keep the gospel moving forward. And he gets to testify before more and more powerful people You see this in church history where the church father, Tertullian, famously said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It will be through suffering and persecution that the gospel advances. That is still true. So again, Jesus sets our expectations for what kind of world we will face as his people. And that expectation is that persecution and suffering for the sake of Jesus and his good news are normal. So there may be places in our lives where we have been tempted and maybe succumbed to the temptation to shrink back in fear and take the easy way. Maybe there's a quiet, easy way to skirt around having to testify of Christ. Testify of the eternal life that he offers to all who believe. And Jesus is saying, don't back down, don't do it. Press forward and endure. Let the certainty of his salvation lead you on because he will rescue, he'll usher you into eternal rest and reward. And he will vindicate you before men and angels. One of the chief reasons why we might fail to endure is because we have brought in the wrong expectations. Can you imagine being a runner? And you're used to running, like me, used to running maybe four or five miles at a time. And you come across a race. And on a whim, you decide to enter it. You register, you get your bib, you get your gear on. And then you're waiting in that crowded starting line, and then the gun fires, and off you go with all the other runners, and you set an aggressive pace for a four-mile distance. But once you hit that point, you're nearly out of gas, you're not seeing the finish line. And you're going, I can't keep this up much longer, I've already hit four miles. And you keep going, you don't see anything, and finally you come up to another runner and ask, how long is this race anyway? And you realize, I probably should have found out a little while ago. And he says, oh, this is a half-marathon. 13.1 miles, and suddenly you get this sinking feeling that you aren't going to make it. Why? Well, even though you're not used to running 13 miles, if you're in good running shape, you might be able to pull off a 13-mile run, but not at the pace you're going. You are not ready for that kind of distance. You you burned yourself out on four miles, you're not going to finish. You won't endure because you weren't ready for a long race, and you're going to drop out because you're caught off guard. And you weren't ready for the long haul. So Jesus is equipping us to not do that. Don't let it be that way for us. Jesus is warning us. It's going to be hot in this world. Don't be naive. Don't expect clear skies. Because if you do, you'll just set yourself up for disappointment and failure. The world will hate us for Christ. But the beautiful thing is that in the midst of that hardship, God controls history. And he will complete our salvation and he is not abandoning us to the random forces of history. He says, I'll see to it that my gospel goes before the nations, and I will save you. I'll complete your salvation. He says he'll be with us by his Holy Spirit to give us the words to say, even when we're on the chopping block. Don't even worry about what to say. I'll be with you. He knows every detail because he has every detail written in his eternal decree. Jesus is warning us as our faithful and sure prophet, that one day our salvation is coming and God will make it all worthwhile, but for now, endure. So that's how to inhabit the present. We are to expect a world filled with false teaching, with false Christs, with tumultuous events, uncertainties, natural and man-made disasters, and persecution against Christians. All these things happen all the time in our world. Our job then is to keep going. Don't get distracted or diverted. Don't get caught off guard. Don't get surprised. Endure and receive the reward of faith. But Jesus is not done. I said he tells us not only how to inhabit the present, but also a key to understanding the past for us. This brings us to verses 14 to 23, how to understand the past. Now, this is really the hard part of our text. And as I read it, you may have been going, wow, what is this about? The abomination of desolation and all these predictions about a, a great tribulation and so on. What on earth is Jesus talking about? Let me just say from the outset, there are two major interpretive options for these verses. One is what we might call a futurist interpretation that reads us as a description of a great tribulation period that still lies in our future. Um, In this reading, the abomination of desolations would be an anti-Christ figure who takes his place in a rebuilt temple in the future in Jerusalem, and the events of this final tribulation would immediately precede Christ's return. The second major option is to read this section, what we might call the preterist, meaning it's already happened. It's a description of events that occurred in the years AD 66 to 70. This was what you might know as the first Jewish war When a Jewish faction called the Zealots rose against the Romans and the Romans, as you might expect them to do in such cases, responded by crushing the whole city and the temple. Now, hoping to not get too deep into the weeds, and this is one where the weeds can get deep. But I am going to give you five reasons why I believe it is the latter, that Jesus is describing the events of roughly AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. And I fully recognize that not everyone agrees with that position. And we might ultimately disagree. And some of you might believe it's the future great tribulation. That's okay. Please hear me out. I have some reasons I believe the text points us to this has already happened. The first reason is remember that this whole discourse is about what? Jesus predicted this temple is going to come down. Verses 1 to 2. And his disciples said, wait, when's that going to be? What's the sign that it's going to be happening? And again, as I pointed out, up to now, we have seen things that aren't the answer. We've seen Jesus say, well, first of all, here's the stuff that isn't the answer to your question. Beware that that will be happening. But these things don't signify that end. And then, as I said, we look at verse 14, and it's a big pivot, But he says, but when you see. So now he's saying, here's timing when, here's a sign, when you see So all that prior stuff was not an answer to the question of timing and signs, but this is, it appears to be. And I'll remind you that that temple was, in fact, destroyed in the year AD 70. The second reason is that in verse 19, Jesus says that the tribulation at that time will exceed anything before or after. And if all these events took place at the very end, that afterpiece would be meaningless. But history, it seems, will continue past this. The third reason is that we're about to see Jesus telling people that when the signs show up, they, the people of Judea, very particular place, should get out of town and get away. So he's saying flee. And the fact that he's presenting a tribulation that is local and escapable seems to mean we're not talking about a worldwide end of days situation. The fourth reason is that his description does in fact fit historical events really well. I'll try to explain some of that in a bit. The fifth and last reason why I believe this took place in 66 to 70 AD is that, Lord willing, we're going to see in two weeks, verse 30, which says, Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not take, will not pass away until all these things take place. Now that's a really difficult verse for folks who take the prior view, the great tribulation at the end of time. And I have not heard, there are explanations, and you might, if you want to look into this more, there's plenty of stuff out there. I have not heard any good explanation for how that, that view fits with Jesus saying this will all take place in this generation. It sure seems like Jesus is saying this will all take place within our generation, and in biblical terminology, a generation is about 40 years. Which is pretty much exactly how much later that happened. So those are the reasons why I believe that what he's about to say in verses 14 to 23, he's talking about events which were in his near future, but they're in the past for us. So with that understanding, let's dig in and see what he said would happen. Beginning of verse 14, the sign was temple desecration. The sign was temple desecration. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand so this is the answer to that question for a sign. He says, this is what to look for. The abomination of desolation. And that sounds epic. What on earth is that? Well, abomination means something polluting or filthy. And desolation means like emptiness and ruin. So it's some kind of polluting presence that ruins something. It is the pollution that ruins and namely, we'd be talking about a sacred space like the temple. Something polluting that ruins the temple. Have you ever unfortunately had to use an eating vessel to clean up a really gross mess of like not food? And it gets so nasty that when you're done, you're like, I'm going to throw this away. Um, I'm not going to clean this and, and eat out of it anymore. It's gone. It's, it's, it, even the most thorough cleaning will not redeem this thing for me. It has been polluted to the point of it's done. That's kind of the idea here. It will be so badly polluted that God's holy space will no longer be a suitable place for worship and for meeting with his glory. Now, you might know that the phrase abomination of desolations or variants of it appear in three different places in Daniel. And for your own uh, edification, if you want to know, it's Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, and Daniel 12.11. And we don't have time to... Work through those verses and surprise, it can be tough to figure out what exactly Daniel is referring to. But it's possible there are multiple times in history when this prediction is fulfilled. Sometimes prophecies have multiple fulfillments. And there was an incident in the year 168 BC between the Testaments when a Greek invader named Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple by having a pig sacrificed at the altar. Can you imagine what a sacrilege that would be? Consider the, the cleanliness code of Leviticus. It was a terrible disgrace until the Maccabees finally, three years later, cleansed the temple. So that might be one of the fulfillments, maybe. Then you have potentially our text, which I'll argue that when Jesus talks about the abomination of desolations in verse 14, he's talking about the zealots inhabiting the temple during their revolt against the Romans. So the Jewish historian Josephus, you may have heard of him, he was a contemporary of these events. And he describes in great detail... What happened in his book, The Wars of the Jews? And the zealots rose up. They were a faction that were very anti-Roman, a very very aggressive, um, revolting faction. And they rose up against Rome, and they ended up inhabiting Jerusalem and setting up shop in the temple. And it was a terrible sacrilege. The Jewish people were aghast at the mockery that the the zealots made of this place. They deposed the priests, and they drew lots, Priests aren't supposed to be chosen by lot. It's a family thing. No, they just chose lots. They rolled the dice to appoint a guy of their own named Phanius as the high priest. He wasn't from the right family. He had no qualifications and no idea what he was doing. It was a terrible sacrilege. This is all from AD 67 to 68. And at that point, the rightful high priest, Ananus, stood up in front of the assembly of the people and said, this is a quote from, from Josephus. Ananus said, certainly it had been good for me to die, like I'd rather I had died, Before I had seen the house of God full of so many abominations or these sacred places that ought not to be trodden upon at random, filled with the feet of of these bloodshedding villains, end quote. Saying, this is a terrible abomination. I'd rather I died than see this. Well, to make a long story short, the rest of the Jews rose up in Jerusalem, fought against the zealots. They had a battle. The zealots brought all their wounded and dead into the temple into the holy places, got their blood all over everything. That further desecrated the place. Later on, the zealots got reinforcements, and they went out and massacred a bunch of Jews in Jerusalem. This is all before the Romans took the city. It was real, real bad before the Romans took the city. So when the Roman general Titus and his troops arrived, they encircle the city, they besiege it, and things get even more hellish, as you might imagine, in a siege warfare situation inside, until finally it was over in the year seventy. So that's the first thing. That's the abomination of desolations. The second thing Jesus says is that the rightful response will be immediate escape. The response was immediate escape. And this takes us the rest of verse 14 through verse 18. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then what do you do? Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. So Jesus' message for the people who would be in Jerusalem and Judea at that time is head for the hills, literally. And often head for the hills means Jerusalem, but that ain't it. Head for different hills. That's that's exactly the place you don't want to go. And this section is an emphatic instruction to run away. And the 4th century uh, church historian Eusebius tells us that the Christians did just that, even in response, potentially he did it in response to Jesus' warning in this text that the Christians in uh, Judea and Jerusalem said, hey, Jesus said when we see this happen, let's get out. And a bunch of them did. That's what Eusebius claims. Now, I want you to imagine that you are an ancient person living in a walled city. Pretty cool. The whole point of a walled city is to give refuge when invaders come marching in. But that only works if the city survives. If not, then the choice to stay in the city or if you're on the outskirts, the choice to go into the city means you're entering a death trap. You kind of have to make a choice. Like, is this city going to make it? Or should I just get out and try my chances out far away? And Jesus is graciously telling his people, Jerusalem will not save you. It's coming down. Get out of there. When they saw the events that I described, the zealots inhabiting the temple, I I think in particular the false high priest is probably the he there, desecrating the temple, but all these other desecrations related to that. They were supposed to run away, and many did, to the the city of Pella, which is in the territory just across the Jordan River. So the the, the response was immediate escape. Thirdly, the moment, verses 19 to 20, the moment was divine judgment the moment was divine judgment for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be and if the lord had not cut short the days no human being would be saved but for the sake of the elect whom he chose he cut short the days now verse 19 might lead us to think that we're we're looking at a future great tribulation that one kind of seems like well it sounds like it's the superlative the worst biggest baddest thing that's ever happened in the world And I grant you the language does sound that way. We might think, well, what about the Genesis flood? How could the events of 67 to 70 possibly be worse than the Genesis flood? When everybody who wasn't in the ark got wiped out. Well, I can see your point. That's a fair point. However, as I said, there does seem to be an indication that history continues after this time. There will be nothing beyond it worse. And I have two possible answers for why the, the tribulation that I believe happened in AD 66 to 70, is described in such epic terms. I'm not quite sure which of these is correct. but I'll put them both before you. First, sometimes the Bible uses language like this, apparently hyperbolically, in a kind of exaggerated way, to describe a really bad event. That it would be tough to put it together how it's literally true in every case. Uh, For instance, listen to God's prediction of the final plague in Egypt in Exodus 11, 11, six. He says this, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been, nor ever will be again. So if we're talking here in Mark 13 about some global cataclysm in the, in the end of days, doesn't that kind of contradict what God said? It'll never be this bad again in Egypt, back in the plagues. I don't think that God and Moses are literally saying that the killing of the firstborn was worse than the flood. We sometimes use the word unprecedented in a non-literal way, simply meaning we don't literally mean nothing this bad has ever, ever happened before. What we mean is this is more extreme than anything that comes to mind in recent memory, anything we can think of. Potentially, that's how the Bible uses language like this. That may be the answer. A second alternative is it is possible that what he's saying is this will, if not quantitatively, like number of people dead, be the worst thing, but maybe qualitatively like the most intense, specifically the most intense outpouring of divine wrath the world has ever seen. It might be that he's saying that. It's not only the misery and the slaughter and the cannibalism and all kinds of terrible things, I don't have to draw the picture for you, that happened in siege warfare, and it happened in Jerusalem. But it's an unprecedented outpouring of divine wrath on a nation that has decisively rejected Christ The Christ who most fully reveals God and the Christ in whom all of God's saving promises are realized. They have rejected God as no one has before or since. And so maybe what Jesus is saying is they will face divine wrath worse than any before or since. And you read this history of what happened. It just sounds so dark and godless. Like what a miserable, miserable place. Again, all this happened even before the Romans came and they made it worse. But however we understand verse nineteen, whether it's, it's literally the worst ever, or it's it's more kind of hyperbolic, um, prophetic language, this is clearly an outpouring of divine judgment. This is God's wrath. Luke's parallel passage in Luke twenty-one twenty-three says, "For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people." But in His mercy, God had an elect, a chosen remnant among the people of Jerusalem. So he says a remnant in verse 20 among the Jews will be saved because some are still chosen to belong to Jesus. If he had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. It would be utter destruction. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Seems like what he's saying is because some of Jerusalem was still elect to belong to God, not every single person was killed to preserve that elect. To preserve that remnant. You see that Paul speaking that remnant language about believing Jews in places like Romans 11. So he has mercy. And it reminds us once again that God's sovereign hand guides every detail of history both to judge and to save. That the forces of man and the forces of evil in history are not chaotically stewing about it and and God's going, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? He cut short the days to save his people. The fourth thing that Jesus told about the near future is that in verses 21 to 23, the subtle danger was distraction from Christ. The subtle danger was distraction from Christ. And he says, And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Now these verses sound a lot like what we, where we started. Verses 5 and 6. False Christ. It's the same warning. But this time he adds the danger of false prophets and he predicts that they will have signs and wonders. These are miracles to lead people astray. Now it's great that he says, if it were possible. It is not possible for God's chosen people to be led astray. Thank God for that. He keeps us in his hand. But it won't be for lack of trying by these pretenders. Again, the forces of evil will use the chaos and instability, especially of this time when the, the Jerusalem is being sacked, to deceive people and to lead them astray. And so Jesus is concerned that the Christians living through the events of, of this time might understandably think, it's happening. Jesus is back. All this crazy end seeming like the end is happening, and then this guy is saying, Here I am, I'm Jesus. And they would be vulnerable to counterfeits. And he's saying, don't follow signs and wonders. It will not be miracles that show that Jesus is back. Next week, Lord willing, we'll hear him go on to describe what his second coming will be like. Saying the, the genuine article will not be dudes saying I'm the Christ and doing signs and wonders. It will be what I describe next. You'll know when I'm back. He's further equipping his people to discern and reject counterfeits. But more immediately in verse 23, he caps off the section in terms that recall the question. Remember, they had asked, What are the signs that all these things will take place? And then he says, I have told you all things beforehand. Of course, he hasn't told them every single thing that could possibly be told. He's saying, I've answered your question, I've told you all these things. So friends, through his word this morning, Jesus has told us how to understand the past and how to inhabit the present. And his warnings have equipped us to keep our eyes on the prize as this crazy world swirls around us. And we ask questions like, will even worse wars begin? Perhaps dragging our country into them. Maybe a hot war with China or Russia or Iran or all three. Will persecution heat up against Christians in the West? We can see clouds stirring and brewing on that. This is what the world will be like in our day, friends. This is what Jesus said it would be like. And we don't know the answers to any of those questions. The answer may be yes to all of them. We don't know when he'll return. But we know that every detail in history lies in the hand of our sovereign and good and wise God. And we know that Christ offers grace and power and present supply in the moment of need and precious rewards to compel us as we endure for him in a wicked and groaning world. If you're ever afraid, like how bad could it get? What will I have to go through? He says, don't worry. My spirit will be with you. He will tell you what to say. You will endure and receive the reward of faith. We know that he's predicted true events before with accuracy and faithfulness. We know that God is patient, but that his time of wrath does eventually come. And we know that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, says Hebrews 10.31. And that doesn't mean to cast ourselves into his saving hands by faith. That's not fearful. That's beautiful. No, it is a fearful thing to fall into his judging hands against unforgiven sinners, those who reject his son. That is a terrifying thing. Greg earlier alluded to past events of judgment in history, the flood, uh, the, the judgments against Sodom and Gomorrah. Think of the plagues against Egypt. And I believe, yes, AD 66 to 70 against Jerusalem. God does come in wrath for those who reject him. But we know that for all who repent and believe the gospel, as Jesus began declaring way back when we first met Him in Mark one, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. For all who respond that way, we know that our saving God will never forsake us; that He will keep us, and that He'll lead us on to eternal safety and rest. Let's pray. Our God. We thank you for belonging to Christ. We thank you for his abundance of salvation. This is a scary world, and we find ourselves caught in currents that are far more powerful than us, and we find ourselves disoriented, and we find ourselves feeling vulnerable. But we thank you that we are in your grip. We thank you that you have declared the end from the beginning. We thank you that no detail of the big world out there or our own lives are accidents to you. And we thank you that Jesus has promised all the grace we need to endure until our faith is made sight. We pray that we would be a people whose eyes are fixed on him and fixed on his mission he's given us. And give us calm, give us freedom in that, even as the, the crazy world swirls on. We pray that any who don't know Christ, who haven't yet turned to him, would see the reality of of how their sin leaves them vulnerable to your just judgment, your righteous wrath. And please compel hearts even right now to flee to the Savior and to find refuge in him alone. We pray all this in his name. Amen.